what can a guy who used to shake his stuff teach us about what it means to be man enough? You like that? I just came up with that. We'll talk about it on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Fundwise Capital. Fundwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals and connect with Fundwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. Um, just, just today, I saw somebody posting a, uh, something on Twitter that said oh, about what it means to be a real man. A real man would do this. A real man would do that. I've heard that so many times over the last oh, 10 years, uh, and it always irks me. It's like a, a pet peeve of mine because... Uh, we're very judgmental about what it means to be a real man. My guest tonight, a former male exotic dancer who's written a book called Take It Off, which is um, kind of a self-help book, believe it or not, in in helping men navigate what what it really means to be man enough, what it really means to be a real man without coming out and putting out silly memes about a real man would do this and a real man would do that. You're not a real man. Uh, And uh, the kind of language that uh, irks me, just to be quite frank about it. Uh, Corey Lane Hilton is a well-respected Canadian Amazon best-selling author and certified authenticity coach. He has entertained thousands of clients internationally, spending a 25-year career in the male exotic dance industry, unknowingly laying the groundwork for his raw mission-driven message through a unique and colorful perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Corey Lane Hilton to the Mind Dog TV podcast. Corey, welcome. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for having me on, man. I have not, I don't think I've had that great of an intro from any podcast I've ever been on. So, wow, kudos to you, my friend. That well, was really cool. Well, thank you. I, I did that because I'm a real man. 
There you uh, go. <laughs> are, are you with me? Have you heard that uh, expression and those kinds of memes? And does that kind of stuff just drive you crazy or is it just me? Uh, no, I can relate to it. I mean, I guess all I can say really is, is that, um, you know, stereotypically people make perceptions of, of what you're, you may have been as a male exotic dancer in my eyes, or for that matter, what stereotypically a man's supposed to represent. I think it puts a lot of pressure on guys, uh, especially in this day and age with what we have going on in the world. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of, I guess you could say, from whatever our family background or from what we've had in our past, we're known as the hunter gatherers and the caveman mentality. Uh, if you're not able to hunt, or hunt, you're not able to gather, then um, you are, I guess you could say, uh, have a lot of pressure on yourself maybe, or um, maybe a lot of guilt to not be able to supply what you need to supply for your family or whatever it may be. And it can really be a lot of pressure on guys. And I've found quite frankly here in Canada in particular, um, statistically three or four men out there are, or th- sorry, three or four suicides are actually male now um there's a reason right like it's like uh, i guess you could say that w- with the way that things have been in this last little while um it's not easy uh if you're if you're forced out of a job for example then and and you know i guess you, you have to um make sacrifices or maybe rely on your partner in a lot of ways you're not being mad enough it puts a lot of pressure on guys so i really feel for it, for a lot of guys in this generation at this time, um, and really even before COVID, there's always been in my own eyes, anyways, a sense of um, lack that I've had, unworthiness, emotional disconnection. I mean, these are all just simply things that I actually struggled with, quite frankly, in my in my former life, in my former marriage, and it's relatable stuff. This isn't like I'm not sitting here saying that I'm you know better or know anything more than a lot of people. These are things that we as guys deal with i just clarify it in a different way my friend because i actually was somebody that was literally exposing myself to the world in canada i mean i was i was literally mr nude western canada back in 1997 i spent 25 years in this insane career from the age of 17 till 43 years old so you want to talk stereotypes or you know having yourself put in a position where people assume that you are what you are um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, I mean, you can assume that maybe every male dancer out there is, is just a, a you know, a slut or whatever it might be. But I, and yeah, I'll admit I had my slut phase just like most people do, but it was no different than the majority of people either. Right. Like I was, um, not the stereotypical dancer when it came to that. So I clarify a lot of this in my book, um, where I just kind of go back to really the basics and, and identify my core values. I identify the struggles that I had with my core values, right? And that kind of connected the dots really to make me a more, far more authentic person all the way around and probably the best version of myself I've ever been at this age. So, wow. yeah, I hope that, you know. That's, that's quite a story. 17, first of all, uh, I'm going to show the cover of the book here now. Uh, it's called Take It Off. Uh, there is a subtitle of the book. Is there not like a, a tagline to it? Well, well, yeah. I don't see I, it. On it's cover. on the side. It's actually on the bind. It's actually called Revelations of a Male Exotic Dancer is the subtitle. And it really is literally revealing. I, I, I have these little things in my branding, you know, I expose myself, revealing. It, it is all Take It Off is the name. And it, it is obviously to do with taking your clothes off but that's not the basis of the book the basis of the book more so is is taking off the layers of life that get compounded on you from the first day you're hatched till whenever right like it's we we get these things put onto us whether it's 
um, unintentionally being inauthentic from an early age and creating fears, or if it's something that you have ingrained in you from your family background, right? It's, it's, it, these are tough things to face sometimes. And for me, I, I wasn't willing to face a lot of these things in my life. I was able to get away with just focusing on the exterior, never really addressing my interior issues at all. And I literally got away with it for so many years. But did I really get away with it? Not really, because I went, went through a lot more hardship than a lot of people really go through, especially when it came to relationships. So I focus a lot on relationships in my book. And it's, it, it does have some funny stripper stories and stuff in there and some injury stories and stuff. But it's, it has its entertainment aspect for sure. But the focus is really on helping men over 30 that really struggle with those types of things and not to have to go through the same pitfalls that I went through. That's all I'm saying. And, you know, if I can help even one person to not deal with some of the crap that I went through, you know, and a lot of people say that, but I truly do mean that, right? Like it's, yeah, it, it, make, it would make a difference for me because I was, I was a guy that at 38 years old was kind of standing on the ledge, I guess you could say to a certain degree and thought that because I'd lost it all, I thought that life was kind of over. And, you know, my life has changed so much and I'm so grateful that I'm, I'm here now uh, to be able to do this because my life has more purpose than it's ever had before. It's, 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 this is the most important thing I've ever done over and above winning any contests or traveling right. across North America. Or Very stuff. cool. I, and I appreciate you doing that because I think, and not to sound too corny myself here about this stuff, but I think having a higher purpose definitely, uh, is is something that is a rewarding stuff uh, beyond what you're giving out all that stuff uh, the the good intention of mm -hmm. to be to be putting something positive out into the universe or into society whatever you want to put it uh mm -hmm. that i think comes back to you tenfold so good for you and i'm glad you're doing it but i have to say now because mm -hmm. your, your story starts at, with you at 17 but the book is for men over 30 why mm -hmm. not why not address because uh, and I'm not saying your your issues started at 17, but clearly you will, you went into the life at 17, which to me, yeah. my first thing was, wow, that sounds like it would be illegal here in New York. Might might not be in, in Canada, but it why was. why focus? Yeah, so why focus on men over 30 when they are clearly? I think a lot of us, a lot of men, a lot of people. Uh, yeah. those developmental years the late teens and and the early adulthood is when a lot when a lot of our problems start so why focus yeah. on yeah 100 percent. i guess the reason why i focus on men over 30 is because like it kind of comes back to when when i actually started to have a lot of these difficulties in my life personally so i can only speak to my former self and when i think about 30 was kind of when a lot of these things that that i had happened to me these struggles that i had happened kind of came to a head and it was really kind of at the time where i committed to being in a marriage right so when i made that commitment again stereotypically somebody might think oh how could you be married to a male exotic dancer they you know how how could anybody have that? I was actually probably one of the better husbands out there because I didn't cheat on my partner. I made my, my partner actually feel really good about being married to me in a lot of ways. So, but to answer your question, the reason why I start, I, I focus on it as far as earlier. In fact, my chapter one of my book is focusing on me at about five years old. And so, and then it morphs into the next chapter where it's more so focusing on when I was 17 and, and got into the industry. And then I became a bodybuilder and I was always in this, that I have to create that storyline because it shows that I was in a perfectionism mode. I was in a comparison mode. I was always having to compare myself and compete against other people. So that put a lot of pressure on me. Right. And when it came down to getting to the point of 
getting to the 30s and above, I was in, I think it can really kind of gets that point where you're 30 and you're, you're just kind of like, you, you know, you're not a kid anymore. You know, you're, you're getting to that point of getting serious. See at 40, you're, you're kind of at that middle age, I guess you could say, depending on what your lifespan is, but it's just getting to that serious point and a lot more serious things start to come into your life. Maybe it's divorce, maybe it's addictions, whatever it might be. These are, like I say, I'm not saying that a person in their twenties can't resonate with what I've written. I just I just focus on that for my main demographic for training people when it comes to authenticity, because you have to go through life to see really where you've strayed from your authenticity to be able to connect those dots to get yourself to the point where you can be more authentic. But a person has to be willing to do it, just like anything. Like you know, you don't want to lose yeah. weight, you got to be willing. You want to quit smoking, you got to be willing. Well, kind of the same thing with that, right? Addressing your own authenticity is one of the hardest things you can do, but it's also one of the more gratifying things and liberating things you can do. So yeah, I, I want to come back to the, to defining that in a moment, but uh, authenticity because I think you're absolutely right, and and I think it's a big part of you can it's not just a men's health issue or men's mental state issue. It's I think it's an everybody issue, but and yeah. I want to come back to that in just a second. But this age sure. thing is important to me because I did go through at thirty. I went through a significant life change. Um, I went. I actually got divorced at thirty years old. Uh, but, um, at, my wife was at the time was 25 and I had a friend who was a singer in my band, a female singer in the band. And I, we were talking about, it and she said, all women go through a major life change at 25. And it, that stuck, that idea kind of still sticks with me, whether it, it's necessarily absolute, an absolute truth. It's something that resonated with me at the moment in that moment. And I still carry that through, but I also mm-hmm. connected that 30 is the age when a lot of men come to this, uh, self self evaluation, uh, yeah. looking at yourself and saying, uh, am I the man I wanted to be? Maybe in my generation is mm-hmm. because we were taught don't trust anybody over 30, but that number was always in my head mm-hmm. that that meant I was going to be, a different kind of adult 30 was you're no longer uh, in your 20s you're no longer a young person you're expected to uh be a more mature person at that point and I'm, am i ready for it what what are all the responsibilities that are coming now with real adulthood yeah. and did i piss them all away in my 20s by being the kind of reckless person i am so do you give mm. any credence to those numbers like 25 for women and 30 for men or is yeah. that just I don't know. I, I I mean, I think it really depends on the person, my friend. I mean, you know, to me, it's like I I kind of I'm a bit of an odd duck because I didn't really have a timeline for that stuff. Like for me, it was kind of like I lived such a free bird lifestyle for for whether, you know, it was touring here in Canada or the States. My life was a lot different. So when it came to growing up, so to speak, um, I was kind of like a band member, or, you know, a person that, that's in the entertainment field. Like, when do you actually really grow up? Right. Like you're just, you're portraying a, an alter ego out there. And so you're hiding behind the mask. That's why that's on my book cover is because is one side of me was hiding behind that alter ego. So did I really grow up? Well, really, I don't feel it felt that I really truly grew up till just a few years ago when I truly did the, took the time to do that introspection and really figure myself out and doing that inner work actually helped me out so much personally and professionally in so many ways that so so I can't I can't really give an honest judgment on it I can't say that everybody is you know that women at 25 have this big shift yeah. because I know women that that 
still are 40 years old that still aren't grown out of the crap that they you know that the traumas or whatever it is that they dealt with when they were younger i so i really personally think that it really comes back to and this is therapist stuff but i really think it comes back to how you were raised and and the domino effect that happens between from your parents and how that drops down that's what i had happen to me so when I, I was admittedly more emotionally disconnected than most men are and men in general are fairly emotionally disconnected anyway. But right. for me, I was on steroids with it because I didn't have a lot of emotional connection from my, my, my father in particular, but even my own mother, because I was adopted to my grandparents. They were of a different generation. They were of a depression era generation. And my father was military. So he had it literally wired into him robotically. You can't show emotion, all that stuff, right? Like the typical stuff that comes with the territory. And it had that domino effect down throughout my entire family, including me. So for, for my way of getting emotional connections started at five years old and it wasn't that my parents didn't love me. In fact, they loved me very much. They just only had the tools that they had and emotional connection just unfortunately wasn't one of them from the stuff that happened. Right. So I grew into a position where I always looked for the emotions out of people. And that's why I think I gravitated towards this insane industry, because whether I was doing something that would make somebody cry, laugh, or scream their lungs out, take it off up there on stage. I was getting emotion out of people and it felt amazing. Like that was the gratification. That was the stuff that gave me the goosebumps. And that's what gave me the, like when I had creativity in my life, that's what made me excited. When I didn't have creativity in my life, I lost that excitement and I became a different person, right? So now that I have creativity back in my life, I have that, 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 I guess you could say that desire for life again that I lost for a while because because when you lose that one core value, it can have that domino effect in your relationships, personally, professionally, and all that good stuff, right? So I struggled yeah. with, with my core values a little bit for a while there. But now that they're more aligned? Yeah, aligned. interesting stuff. Now, um, there's so much to, to, to delve into there. But before we do that, <laughs> let's, let's talk about authenticity and what it really means because it's a, it's a word, and um, people obviously think they know the definition of the word. But when we're talking about how you identify yourself and being honest with yourself before you can be honest with, with the rest of the world, what, 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 yeah. so define it in terms of what it means in terms of the message that you bring forth in your book. Yeah. Well, first off, I feel that it's, it's about the, the main word is awareness. It's awareness, not only of your values. Cause I've heard a lot of people say, Oh yeah, you have to be aware of your values, your core values to be an authentic person. Yeah, that's important. And everybody has a different set, right? Like I could go over your core values are going to be different than mine just because of the lens that you've seen life through. But more importantly, over and above just the values is the feelings that are attached to those values. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that. Like when I wrote down my value of, say, for example, relationships, the feeling that I have from my relationships is connection, right? Well, if I'm feeling disconnected on a day, right? I've got to look at my that and go, okay, well, what part of my relationship, whether it's personally or professionally is lacking, what's making me feel that disconnection, right? So, and so I literally took the time in each and every one of my chapters to determine which core value that I had that was actually I was having a struggle with in that chapter and identify it right at the beginning of the chapter. So when the readers going through it, they're like, Oh, yeah, I see where he was really struggling with this and why he was. And then at the end of the chapter, 
I actually reveal what I call the naked truth. And it's at the end of every chapter. And it just simply is my accountable, like honest, like not drug hazed, full on reality of what happened, where I was, I was irresponsible at times, whatever it might've been, where I strayed from those core values. And that's why I had that pitfall. So I'm literally showing my audience, Hey, I'm going to show you mine. You show me yours. That's where my training comes in, where it's like, I'm going to be vulnerable enough to open up every freaking skeleton in my closet. I'm going to be vulnerable enough to show you exactly where I was lacking all the shit that I went through. I'll show it all to you. Right. But if you want to, if you're willing and you want to actually address your stuff and you want to be liberated like me, feel free. Come on. I'll give you the one-on-one training. I'll give you the video training, whatever you want. It's going to work with my, with my book itself. Read the book. You can cross-reference it. And then by being that vulnerable, I'm gaining trust with my, with my people, the people that are going to want to be willing to, to work with me. I'm, I'm gaining that trust because I'm showing them, Hey man, I'm just human, just like you are. Right. Like I might've been up on stage, but I'm just another guy that struggled with the same sort of shit that everybody does. It's just through a different lens. Well, right? uh, there's a couple of, again, every answer you're giving me here, there's a lot that I want I, that I could delve into now. if we had an enormous <laughs> amount of time. But yeah. so first of all, I think this is an important point to make and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems like telling the naked truth would be a little bit painful at some time sometimes and require a little bit of a lot of courage in some areas and being that kind of honest is Mm -hmm. going to come it's going to come at some price for you it doesn't come without any kind of price and i think that's important for guys who are going to be reading the book to understand Mm -hmm. that uh if you want to take go and start this journey you have to understand there's going to be some pain and some some work involved in uh, I think as a society, we kind of, you know, fear and, and say, take a step back when we realize that, wait, introspection requires me being honest with myself. Well, mm-hmm. I don't want to be honest with myself. I like the lies I tell myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, but that's a tough one. Like, hey, man, I can tell you straight up. Like, one of the hardest things, one of the hardest struggles I had with writing this thing was admitting that I actually controlled my ex-wife. I was borderline misogynistic. I controlled her. Like, and, and, and yes, she was willing, she wanted the control, but I let her live through her life, through my body. I was, it was the most codependent marriage you could ever imagine. And it was destined to blow up just by, just by looking at it with no blinders on it. It's obvious as it could get right now, but in the moment it was just made sense. And so again, I was adopted to my grandparents. So I was living, I was living a Ricky Lucy marriage in in 2000 and the year 2000 i was still living back in 1950 right so i all i'm saying is is that by by understanding why these things happened in my past and connecting those dots i can be a better person now so facing that thing that that authenticity yes you have to be willing and yes it is scary but at the same time like it's just your truth and you can cover it up if you want to but you're still, you're going to continue to have the cycle happen. Like you're going to go back into your next relationship and you're going to have, you're going to trip across the same shit over and over and over again. So if you're happy with doing that, fill your boots, but 
for me, I just wasn't happy with that anymore. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I wanted actual, I wanted a higher state of consciousness in my relationship, Matt. That's what I'm trying to say. So how do I get a higher state of consciousness? I have to be able to understand my values, understand the core, the, the, the feelings that are connected. But even more importantly, if I'm going to be together with somebody, I want to understand their values and their feelings that are connected with that and have a conversation about it every so often to stay in line. Right. Wow. Because that's where the seven year itch comes into play. Right. Like the seven year itch comes into play because people learn and grow at a different pace. And if you're not communicating and you're not understanding what your partner is going through, then you're playing the slot machine. Like it's like the honeymoon phase ends and you're sitting there going, well, yeah, now what do we do? Well, yeah, you know, it's not what it was before. Well, why wasn't why isn't it what it was before? Well, right. because you grew in a different way and I don't understand you anymore. You're different than you were when I married you. Right. And so that was just a realization that I had a realization, a realization that you had now. And maybe this is putting the cart before the horse or jumping to the end too quickly. But what led to that realization? I mean, were you were you depressed? What what, I I mean, obviously, in rehabilitation, they say most people have to hit rock bottom. But what what is that rock bottom? It sounds like. It, it, what you're talking about is some kind of emotional rock bottom, whether you had yeah. any addictions or any of that kind of stuff, I don't know about, but yeah. um, the, what led you to that realization that you needed to make these changes and, and develop that kind of introspection? What is it? Did you go to therapy? I mean, talk, no. talk to me about how you got to that point. Yeah, man, I went to therapy for like a few sessions after I, I got divorced at 38 because I had a really heavy divorce where I was, and it's a long story. I could be here for hours talking about that. But the bottom line was I was just kind of to the point where I was sick and tired of being in a power struggle in my relationship. So what I mean by that is, you know, whether it be the first girl that I ever fell in love with that I had a crush on in school, I would look up at her on her pedestal and be like, oh, she's such a goddess. And I would just be like, I'd put her on that pedestal, this high expectation of this person to always be this vision that I had of her. And then on the counter side of it, I got married and I stood up on my pedestal and looked down at my wife, expecting her to change or to expect having high expectations of her. And the audacity that I had to actually even think that in the first place when I wasn't even willing to address my own shit. I would point my finger at everybody else all the time, but I wouldn't use the thumb and look at myself and try to be a better person because I was already such a great, perfect guy, right? Like, you know, it's just like, come on. So when you're in this comparison game, when you're in this perfectionism game, you know, for so many years, like till I was 43 and having this status and just having so many people around me that, that always wanted a piece of me, but nobody really wanted to really truly get to know the real me, then I kind of brought some of that ego that I had on stage in that role. I took it back to my house. I literally took it into my house. And it's it's something that I couldn't actually truly understand until I lost it all. Like I had to lose it all to try to, to, to really get sick and tired of being in that position. And I, and I don't want to be there again, right? Like to me, whether it's whether it's whatever my next relationship is, because I'm a single guy now and I'm happy being single. I one of my values is actually detachment because it allowed me to actually by detaching, it allowed me to take a step back, look at my life, empathize with and understand why my partners had these issues with me and and understand what I was doing wrong 
because I can only control what I was doing. I can't control what they were doing, right? So when I sat back and went, you know what? I'm not playing the blame game anymore. I'm at least 50% accountable for all this shit that's happened to me. Okay, I can accept that, but I had to clarify why. And the only way I could clarify why was when I started this writing process, went through the process of starting to journal my stories and trying to document all this stuff. And then I kind of looked at it and went deep into it and figured out, yes, it all came back to my, my authenticity, living through somebody else, like living through the, the, the alter ego and not really addressing my own shit. And my, everybody has shit. Like, I don't care who you are. I think that really we all have our mental issue struggles. I don't think that anybody <laughs> has the perfect life. But I think that sometimes people perceive that I, I had this perfect life or that I was living this dream or whatever it is. And it's kind of like, yeah, but when the lights went down and I was back at my hotel room and it was just me facing myself. Um, yeah, I kind of was hungry to have friendships. I was kind of hungry to have people that I could trust and love in my life. And I didn't really have that. It was hollow. Right. So that's what it kind of comes back to is, is that now I feel that where I'm at, although I'm not on the stage anymore, the relationships that I have, although they're fewer, they are authentic. They are my flat tire five. I can guarantee you that if I was stuck with a flat tire somewhere, they would be there for me. I like that phrase, you flat know? tire five. I haven't heard it before, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, and, and so like to me, it's like I'd rather have five of those than have 5,000 of the acquaintances. Right. Oh, like, I, I look good. I, I agree. Like I'm Honestly. a, and uh, you know, on social media, I was always a person who never had a lot of friends and proud of, um, I was proud of that. But lately reaching out to uh, people in the entertainment industry, I've had to expand that. But I know that 5,000 friends on Facebook, they're not my friends. They're just mm -hmm. people that I'm making a connection with in order to kind of um, uh, be able to see if we can help each other in business or whether, or through the, you know, this platform but mm -hmm. realize that only two of those people are really my friends out of five thousand people only two of them are my real friends but they're quality totally. friends and that's most important oh um, man i used to leave i used to leave the club some nights and go hang out with my old vietnam vet buddy on a friday night when there was thousands of girls at the club i'd go leave and just go hang out with him and you know rip a doobie with him or something and shoot the shit about his vietnam stories because i knew it was real and it was authentic Right. right. Like you'd think that I would be on the other end of the scale. But as somebody that was in dancing for that many years, you get to the point where hey, you're in your 30s, you're still doing it. You're kind of like, man, I, I just want kind of more like I don't want just the party scene all the time. That's what I get paid to do. I want something that's deeper. Right. So sometimes when I was amongst thousands of people in spring break or whatever it was at the club that I worked at in Florida, I was just starving for, for real, real authentic relationships. And I just couldn't find it. And I, I went down the ecstasy hole for a while trying to find that emotional connection and, and it did happen. And, it, and it, but I went through that ecstasy door and it brought me to some amazing places and I had some really good times. Like I had some fun times and I wouldn't trade it away. I really wouldn't. Like I had some amazing, amazing stories, but at the same time, it didn't bring me where I wanted to go. Like, it was kind of like, it was just a, it was just a filler. It was a chemical filler. And now what I find that what I'm doing now without that hazed reality, that unhazed reality, I'm getting that same adrenaline rush and I'm getting those goosebumps, but it's for all the right reasons, right? Gotcha. It's, so it's just a difference in mindset. And I'll even come back to the connect, the, the, the emotional connection thing. Like this, I think that for a lot of guys in particular, we have this arc of intensity that builds up, we get triggered, and this arc builds up, and it builds up, and it builds up. And then it's kind of like, 
Have you ever been in that position where your gut starts to kind of bother you or you get your skin flushed because somebody said something that really ticked you right off, right? And it's like, I've yeah, had this happen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you, you, you blurt out something after bottling it up that's totally not you and you just say something, bam, just to, just to dissolve it. And it's like, without taking that pause, right? And so I've done that so many times and my dad did that so many times and I witnessed it that I just didn't want to be that anymore. So now when that buildup happens, I take that step back, I breathe it out and it kind of go, okay, why is this triggering me the way it is? It is. Is, it, is it really this person that's in front of me or is it some shit that happened last week? Or what is it that's really bothering me? Is it my financial situation? <laughs> like, you know, and I try to just determine that before I respond is all I'm saying. And it's made a world of difference by just raining that stuff back in. It's the emotional intelligence that's attached to the authenticity, right? So, yeah. Good stuff here. Now, um, I want to ask you about this because I think it's really important. Because Earlier you, you talked about it's not my parents. It's not that my parents didn't love me. They did no. love me, but they were doing the best with the tools they had. I think that's important, uh, not just for, for talking about your upbringing and all this stuff, but I no. think, first of all, it's something I say all the time because people hear me talking about outrageous stories about my parents. And I, and I say this to everybody. We all had parents who because you don't get a book on how to parent nobody no, does no, no lessons on how to be a great parent every yeah. single parent out there was doing the best they had with the tools that they had to work with but yeah. now coming to your story and sharing your story with other people in in looking to help them yeah you are uh being a little bit hard on yourself but in in, in also in being hard on yourself uh, and being the naked truth and putting that out there there has yeah. to be some level of self-forgiveness that goes with this just as you forgive your parents knowing that they Absolutely. were doing the best that they could so talk yeah. to me about the the value of that because you are being very frank and honest about your shortcomings mistakes you made sure. whatever however you want to characterize that but in some sense you have to look at your life and say wait i'm not a bad person no. i did these things this was part of the journey i was on and even though you're taking 50% of responsibility for failed relationships and all that stuff, you also have to forgive yourself in, in some yeah. way. So talk to, talk to me about that if you could. Yeah. For me, like, I mean, you've heard it before. Forgiveness isn't about you. It's about, or isn't about the person that you're forgiving. It's about you, right? It's, it's letting go. Right. And so for me, I look at it when I, when I look back, for example, for my father, like he, um, he only had the tools that he had, right? Well, yeah, but you only know what you know. And so he had a 10th grade education and he was raised in the depression and his mom committed suicide. So how many tools did he have? Right. Right. You know, really think about that. So when it comes down to it, he just taught me what he knew. He taught me a lot about morality and integrity. And he taught me a lot of really good things that like, I'm really grateful that he taught me, but it, the chain reaction to that was unfortunately a, a really hard thing to connect with people emotionally. So that that's just one. Um, but, but I will say that, you know, when it comes to just my, I guess you could say like the, the forgiveness side of things, I, um, I admit now without trying to be this perfectionist, I admit that I'm imperfect. And so by saying, you know what? Yeah, Corey, you dropped the, I don't know, you dropped the mayonnaise on the floor in the kitchen and it got all over the place. Maybe before I'd have been, you know, talking down myself and saying, oh yeah, shit, man, way to go. 
you know, and just really being hard on myself. Whereas now I'll just kind of laugh it off and be like, oh, well, shit happens, you know? And, and so it's just that literally, like even just verbalizing, just throwing out the words about yourself is the negative self-talk can really drag you down and really not allow you to appreciate the person that you look at in the mirror. So for all the time that I worked so hard on this exterior that I had in this career of mine, I could never really honestly look in the mirror and be happy with the person that I was. Even when I was to the point of being a bodybuilder on stage and I was dieted down and people were like chanting my name when I was on stage, I could still look at those pictures, Matt, and pick myself apart and be like, oh yeah, I should have done this better, should have done this better. I couldn't say anything good. It was always what I didn't do, right? So I forgive myself now for being so bloody critical. Like just being so critical, not only to myself, but to people in my dance review, to people that I worked with for, for maybe a day that went sideways and I was doing sales and I was throwing my headset down and screaming and yelling at the computer because I didn't make the sale that day because I wasn't in the right mindset. Whatever it was, like I'm, I'm forgiving of myself now for, for my imperfections with that. And I'm more so aligned with progression which is why I really practice a lot of yoga now because I really have went from that bodybuilding mindset of trying to make my exterior so perfect to a progression, a practice, a yoga practice where I actually can reset mind, body, the whole thing and really be good with who I am as a person. I think it really starts with you and and for me, like to be able to forgive my wife or maybe for my ex-wife or forgive my my, my parents for what, what what they weren't able to teach me whatever it is, I'm not passing blame off on them anymore. I used to sit there and try to figure out, blame the world for all my shit. Like I'd sit there and go, oh, I've just climbed up the mountain of life and some boot came and kicked my ass back down again. I'd use that all the time. And I didn't really realize that the boot was my own boot. It wasn't anybody else's. It was just that I was always passing blame off on other people saying, oh yeah, you know, this should have happened. And and just not really taking the accountability for it and going, yeah, you know, Corey, you screwed up there or whatever it was, but be okay with it, you know, because nobody's perfect and learn from your mistakes and just be better, right? Like right. push yep. it off and let it go because okay. it's not serving me. Totally get it. <laughs> uh, a lot of performance. Now, I, I don't know how this fits into your kind of performance that you were doing for 25 years, but comedians, musicians, actors, uh, we, we experience something called imposter syndrome. In other words, yep. you're up there and people are respecting you for the, the performance that you're, uh, bringing. But in the back of your mind, there's always this, this voice that even though you might be projecting ego and self-confidence and all this stuff, that you're not good enough, you're not enough, and somebody at some point, somebody's going to figure it out and expose you for being the phony that you are. <laughs> Is that yeah. part of a male dancer's mindset? <laughs> yeah. yeah, good question. I love that one, actually. That's what I didn't expect to get. Um, the reason why I really like that question is because I learned to flick the switch. And I, I, when I would go on stage, whether it would be my first show I ever did or my last show that I ever did or any of them in between, I always got the butterflies. I was always nervous thinking, oh, what's going to happen? Am I going to trip and fall and break my nose on the stage or something and embarrass myself or whatever it was? But it just like any fear, it just requires flicking the switch. It's not a matter of the action. It's just the anticipation of the action, right? So like when I think about imposter syndrome, I could sit here and 
go into that zone all day long and tell you about all the reasons why I can't and why I'm, I'm maybe I'm not a good coach or I'm not a good author or whatever it is. And I can get into my head all day long with that. It's not going to serve me or anybody else around me. Right. But if, but for example, like I was in the Philippines two years ago, just before COVID set in and I was standing up on top of Kawasan falls in Cebu, one of the most beautiful waterfalls in the world. And I'm 15 meters above and I'm going to go and I'm going to make this jump into this, this crystal blue water moment of a lifetime, right? Sitting there and I'm like, my God, I'll never be standing in this spot again. And the guide's counting three, two, one. And I could have stood there and freaked out and turned around and walked away and pushed out and went back down and regretted it for the rest of my life. But instead of sitting there freaking out and worrying about if I'm going to die from jumping off this thing, as soon as he said three, two, one, I just said, fuck it and jumped. And it was one of the most <laughs> exhilarating things I've ever done. Wow. And I was just sitting there going, my God, that was such an incredible experience. I'll be 80 years old and I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. But I could have regretted okay. not doing it, right? Just because of fear. And so when I think about imposter syndrome, I always think that's just something that we all have inside of us that just tells us we can't. Do you honestly think that the biggest superstars in the world were hatched out and just thought they were going to be a superstar from the day they were born? No, right? Like they had to believe in themselves. Right. Really, you know, have faith. I'm not even talking about religious faith. I'm just having talking about having faith in you. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's where I've switched that gear big time in this last few years. I understand that. But in some ways, and maybe I, I'm confusing this, but. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a catch twenty two. In order to be really accepted for uh, and by because people see through inauthenticity. I, at least I Absolutely. believe they do. If you're inauthentic, they will see through it. But yep. so in order to be successful, you have to be you know uh, you have to be authentic. But then there's this, especially for performance, this kind of thing where you have to teach yourself to be inauthentic about your fears or at least convince yourself your insecurities whatever you want to call them that they aren't there or to rise above them in some way you're being inauthentic about about the level of insecurity that you have am i am i missing something there i think it's i don't even want to maybe necessarily use the word inauthentic as much but i will say that there is a certain element of anything where it comes down to tricking your 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 mind i guess you could say tricking your mind to to do something that you want to do like is i'm saying like when it comes to discipline for example like i'm a former bodybuilder one of the most disciplined things you can possibly do right um did i want to get up off the couch and put the remote down and take my ass to the gym no i didn't want to do that my body's telling me god Corey, you got to just chill here and just relax but i had to trick my mind to say no i got to get up and get the work done i gotta do it right so if it's a matter of being a performer or a good author or whatever it is some to not everybody's gonna wake up every day and be like oh my god i'm on top of the world i'm gonna go kill this i don't think that anybody's really that way sometimes you have to it's not being inauthentic inauthentic you just have to trick yourself to say hey i'm gonna go do this even though i don't want to i'm gonna go into the resistance right it's like that i that's the, the i think the best analogy i've ever heard about discipline is is um, the Buffalo analogy, and it's from a guy by the name of Rory Vaden, and he wrote an amazing book about this called Take the Stairs. But it's more so about like the buffalo will run into the run in directly into the storm, right? The cows will run away from the storm. But if you're running into the storm, you're going into the resistance, but you're not going to be in the storm as long. Right. But if you're running with the storm, you're in the storm a whole lot longer, right? So it's like that activity now cures captivity later. It's like get it done. 
so you're not going to be captive to it later on. So I just think that I hope that kind of answers your question, because I think that the imposter syndrome thing is really just in our own heads. I, I think that no matter where you're at, like I, I'm 52 years old, I'm starting this career right now. I know people that are in their 80s that are starting new careers. They could sit there and say, oh, well, I'm too old for this shit, you know, but they don't. They say, no, I can do this, you know, so it's just all you. I think it really comes down to, I think that people normalize themselves a lot and they don't realize that other people out there in this world actually see their greatness. Maybe it's your people that you've associated with in your environment that see you as the, the kid that had a booger in his nose or something. And they just see that for the rest of their life. Right. They don't see that you are the person you are now. So when I talk to strangers and I say, yes, I've wrote a best-selling book. Yes. I've designed courses. You know, I've done all this stuff. They're like, oh my God, that's great. That's amazing. Tell me more. Whereas I could talk to a family member or I could talk to somebody that I've known in my former career. They're like, oh yeah, Corey, right on. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. right? Like they don't care because they've normalized me. Right. So so you started this at 17 and you did it for 25 years. I'm uh, doing the math that comes out at 42. Now, 43. did you see the was it a conscious decision to say I'm going to change my life. I don't want to do this anymore. Or did age kind of force you out? Uh, I mean, yeah. basically, uh, what? how did the end of that career come about? Was it a conscious uh, decision? Dude, that's such a great story. Um, I, when, I was, when I first got into this industry, I was underage. I was working here in Canada in the, the um, drinking age is 19, of course. And so for myself, I was really lucky because I had a friend of mine that was a couple of years older than me and he was a bouncer at a bar. And he said to me, he's like, oh yeah, come down to the bar. And, you know, I'll get you in and wear a university shirt. So I, of course, showed up at the bar when it opened up. There wasn't a soul around. I'm all nervous. And I got introduced to the manager. Yeah, he says, oh, you know, you're going to school. I said, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, yeah, if you know, you're looking for some extra income. I'm like, yep, starving student. And he says, well, take your shirt off. And so I wheeled my shirt off and he said, okay, be here on Tuesday. And I'm like, what am I doing? And he said, oh, you're serving drinks to the ladies for two and a half hours. And you, you take a cut of all the booze that you sell and you, you make all your tips. Are you down? And I'm like, am I down? This is a dream, <laughs> right? So here I was in high school, you know, and I'm serving drinks on Tuesdays and Thursdays and going to school the next morning. And my folks were good with it. They said, look, you don't get messed up on drugs and you keep your grades up your boots huh you know go have a good time do it right so i did and so that was the way it started but then when, to answer your question when i first saw male dancers taking it all off i saw one guy that was in his mid-40s he should not have been out on stage matt he should not have been out there anymore like really like this guy really should not have been out there and i looked at him and i'm like oh my god i never want to be that guy ever if i do this thing if i actually go into this industry i never want to be him and so, yes, again, I was comparing myself right from the beginning to somebody that I felt shouldn't have been out there, right? So I go into the industry, I hit the peak, I do all this great stuff and win contests and travel around, do all this stuff. But when I hit 43 and I was at my very last show, ironically, I got, this is kind of funny, but I'd already chose to retire. I'd been doing some local shows here. They were nothing like they were when I was doing big shows. It was just kind of bachelorette parties, dancing around some girl in a chair. And I wasn't in the shape that I was in before. And I was kind of on the downgrade. I was like, you know, kind of at that point where I'm like, oh, should I do this anymore? And, and so I decided to get out of it. And then all of a sudden I had somebody contact me from back in high school. And she said to me, she's like, Corey, would you do a show for my friend? She's her 40th birthday. And I was like, nah, well, nah, I've, I'm retired. And she said, oh, come on, give me your price. And so I 
I tripled my price and just thought, you know what, I'm going to throw out a ridiculous amount of money so that she won't even take this up and I'll just, you know, I'll get out easily. Right. Well, I tripled my price. And of course they snatched the price up and said, yep, let's do it. So now I'm forced to, and now I'm out of shape and I'm like, Oh God, I got to go out and do this. And I'm just having like nightmares about having to go out and do this last show. And, and I realized in that last show, just based on the crowd that I was working for and just everything, the way that it all kind of went together, I was like, this is just not what it used to be. And it's never going to be this again. And I'm actually pretty damn close to being that guy. I think I'm going to burn that freaking G string and I'm never going to use it again. And I literally torched that sucker on my freaking clothesline out back. I lit it on fire and I was done. <laughs> never to be had, never to happen again. Right. So yeah, you know, I mean, and it was just a decision that I eventually made and, and decided to go into a, a whole different realm into the corporate and, you know, and I, I became a financial advisor and did a few things in my, in my forties that I was never really truly satisfied with. Cause I didn't have that creativity and excitement in my life. So I'm just in a different zone of excitement now as well. Wow. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So, uh, and I, I, just to add some levity here, you mentioned, um, uh, injuries. Now I'm thinking the injuries <laughs> probably happened in training and in, in bodybuilding. No, it happened. No, uh, ladies hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of, I had a couple fingernail scratches. I'm not going to deny that, but actually, no, it's actually kind of, kind of funny. Like <laughs> something people like to laugh at people's pain in me included. I think that's why jackass does so well, but, um, you know, I, I was, I was actually, ironically, I, I just, I, I put a couple of these in my book. One was a, a mishap that I had because back in the day, like a long time, they used to have, I don't know if you're familiar with Pert Shampoo, but uh, Pert Shampoo used to actually be a green glowing shampoo. If it was under right. the black lights, it actually used to glow bright green. So a lot of us dancers, we used to use it to, you know, maybe maybe enhance a show a little bit, right? So the, the the DJ would turn the lights off and it would just be black lights and the dancer would pour some of this green glowing crap all over them and they'd be you know spreading around on them and stuff. So I, of course, did an act like that one time and I had this big pool of shampoo laying below me, not realizing, and the DJ flicks the lights back on. And of course, the, the, I can't see the shampoo anymore. It's just, you know, looks like water, right? And I go into my next song, and of course, it's a fast song. So, dancing around, having a good time, and all of a sudden, like he turns the lights off, and I didn't realize it. And the black lights come on, and I didn't see the green pool laying on the floor, and it was right there at the front of the stage. And I hit it like a wet banana. I flew right up in the air and landed right on my ass in the middle of this puddle of glowing green shampoo and covered the entire front row with all this gross shampoo and we all sat there and laughed and i felt like i was gonna break my tailbone but i never did that was one and then the other one that actually sticks out more than any was when i was in a club called berry tees in edmonton alberta and they had this odd stage where it was kind of in the round where all the girls were kind of like just around you and and the dance floor was was set down below and they had the scaffolding that came up about six feet so that you'd be at eye level with all the girls that were kind of sitting up on the stage up, up above. So I was up there doing this spin move that I used to do and I'd spin, like keep spinning all the way across the stage. And at the end of it, I'd plant one foot and kick out the other direction. So I of course do this spin move and I go to plant my foot, but I was a little bit too off, far off the edge of the stage and I planted into air. I missed the entire thing. And so I dragged my ankle right down the side of the bloody thing all the way down the inside of my leg and bounced my crotch right off the side of the stage and flipped over and ended up six feet down laying on the floor. And, you know, it just the whole crowd just gasped. They were just like, oh, my God, like they just freaked out. 
And then of course my guys came up and checked if I had a broken leg and I was fine. And I got up and I was bleeding all over the place because scraped the shit out of my leg. And so I go, go to get back up on the stage and the funniest thing happened. Like I'm just standing there and I just threw a blanket down on the stage and I had a lineup of girls like all the way across the whole club. And they're all just sitting there with our Canadian loonies and toonies, our coins. And they're just throwing coins at me as sympathy tips, just like, Oh, this poor son of a bitch. Like he's, he did a good show, but man, he's hurting right now. We got to give him some sympathy here. So they were just, mm. I made so many tips just from that incident happening. That just I would have, you, I knowing the person I am, I would, I would have capitalized that. And I would have thought, well, Oh, I'm onto something here. Maybe if I fake an injury, every show I'll, get, I'll make more oh, money just for, in terms and uh, cause we'll, just out of curiosity, just pure curiosity, <laughs> sure. what kind of money would, would, would do do people in that profession make? I mean, yeah. on- it's man. I used to always use the terminology: it's craft dinner one night, it's steak and lobster the next. It's like uh, I did shows everywhere from Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories as far south as Tampa, and is and you know all over the whole southeastern U.S. and all over Canada. So. It really depended on where I was. And, and, and I will say, you know, like there was nights where I did shows in Winnipeg, Canada, where it was minus 30 outside. And there was five girls inside the club and I didn't make but a, a couple dollars in tips and a crappy show pay. And, you know, that was that was craft dinner night. Then I could tell you about shows where I was in Indiana and we we did shows for 1800 girls and sold out more tickets than Rick Springfield did the night before. And it was all women and it was like a freaking concert there. And they just came in like a herd of cattle and showed up right at the friggin' front of the stage and stood there like concert style waiting for us to show up. And I made more money than I ever made in one show there. I think I made about 1500 bucks in a matter of two hours. And I was just back at the hotel room counting my money. And while the other guys were actually getting action, I was back at the hotel room counting on the phone with my ex-wife saying, baby, I'm, when I get home, man, we're going to Victoria's Secret and we are buying us some stuff. This is going to be great. You know? So that's what I'm saying. Like it was up and down, right? Like <laughs> pardon the pun on that, but it kind of was right. So, right. yeah. So, what about the term? Uh, because, uh, you know, ego is what it is. And a guy doing that, obviously, and we compare ourselves and all that comparison stuff, but you got to have some sense of ego in that from getting it from all these women phoning over you all the time. But then there's this other part of the psychic uh, part of it that I'm curious about. Uh, because uh, especially I think women would experience this more, the idea that you're just a piece of meat and that mm-hmm. women might assume or rights to do, to touch you in ways that maybe, and, and, you know, not you wouldn't want from every woman in the crowd or whatever. Any, any of that go into that life of... Yeah occasionally there's the occasional hand that slipped into the wrong area or whatever but it was all about taking control you know i just grab the hand and throw it on my chest instead or whatever right like because i mean stereotypically like i've kind of said this in their podcast before like stereotypically people might look at a male dancer and think one thing but not one represents all it's just like the ladies that come out to ladies night not every ladies that's out there is looking for action right maybe they're just coming out with their friends to have a good time that night so I don't know. I just don't really like look at it like that. I mean, I, I didn't, I came out in a 25 year career, my friend with no scars whatsoever, really. And I didn't really, I think that realistically, like the, the mental scars were there to a certain degree on because of, you know, certain things that, that, that I did personally, cause I hit some rock bottom moments and stuff, but those were all my own things. Like nobody did that to me. I was never in a position where I was 
I guess you could say like, you know, exploited or anything like that. Like I never looked at my former career as something that was, I was proud of the things that I did. I, I accomplished so much. Like I wasn't your typical dancer that did the YMCA all the time. Right. Like I wasn't that guy. Like I was the guy that was creating acts where I was, you know, I'd broken up with a girlfriend and I was going through some really heavy hardship. And I, I brought that pain onto stage with me and, you know, was, I created an act where I was the executive, where I lost everything and I'd had everything that anybody wanted, but I was a bum now. And I, I lost my wife. I lost my car. I lost all my shit. Right. So I was like, you know, poor guy. Right. So that I'd have the crowd and, you know, emotionally connected with me. And then I would, you know, set the scene with this fire on stage and it's kind of a park scene with the park bench and the, the burning garbage can and all that. And in the end, I'd take my my wife's picture that I'd broken up with and I'd throw her ring that she the last two possessions that I had. I'd throw the ring that I still had and her picture that I was carrying I'd throw that in the fire and move on with my life. And that was the big act, right? right? And it was like, then I'd go into the oil show and the girls would be like, oh, it's so sweet. And, you know, I just grabbed the emotion, right? But I didn't want to just do that stereotypical bullshit. I've never been like that. I've never wanted to be mediocre. Like I, I always wanted to be more creative and I really enjoyed that side of it. And that's what got me to the point where I won contests and was able to sustain a career that long that a lot of guys don't, I don't know any guy actually, quite frankly, in my entire life. I've never met anybody that's had a longer career than I have in this industry. And I challenge anybody to find one. If they can, let me know. I'd love to talk to them. I bet we can share some great stories. You know what? There's, <laughs> there's some enlightenment in that answer that probably neither one of us kind of could have predicted. But for me, <laughs> I would say 99% of heterosexual men never saw your show so we we don't know what stereotypical means but i'm surprised to find that that any creativity goes into it at all because uh, i'm sure a lot of guys like me who again who've never seen the show because we're not even we wouldn't be in there and we wouldn't be allowed in no matter what so we've never <laughs> seen it so we basically just think you're just going out there shake your it's just go out there just shake your stuff no creativity goes into it at all the fact no. that you're saying there's a lot of creativity that goes oh, into yeah. it and you put a lot of it into it. That's an enlightenment yeah. for, for somebody like me who's never, <laughs> never seen one and never imagined oh. it being anything other than just go out and take your pants off and start shaking no. it. <laughs> no, it, you know, in Canada, we did solo shows and I created some really, you know, interesting acts. And yeah, you know, I had maybe a few different acts that I'd kind of switch out and just kind of do. And I got confident in doing them. But the real creativity came when I went to Florida. Like when I got down there and started working at the largest beach club in North America. America. like that was when i had to learn choreography right that was work like like you're literally having to learn like stuff that's in the in you know the janet jackson video right like yeah. you're spending hours and hours and hours perfecting this art right like you're spending time creating stuff that can make that crowd like i say laugh their guts out to the point that they want to piss themselves or laughing so hard we went above and beyond being an actual burlesque show where it was like we wanted to be we my group actually filled we had big shoes to fill when we showed up in florida because the group that we replaced was one of the best groups in all of the world at that time in back in 1996 so all 10 guys left and then all uh, new 10 guys came in so i was one of the new guys and i had really a lot of a lot of point to prove and a lot of work to do to get to that same level and so why i actually have the representation of the the the, the theater mask on my cover is because Quite frankly, it's the the charm that's around my neck. And 
10 of the, 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 the charm that's around my neck is actually one of only 11 that were ever made. And they were all made for the original group that was there. And the 11th was actually by, it was, was, was a girl that actually was very close to them that worked with them in the, as far as their marketing and stuff. And they were really close friends with her and she had the 11th charm. And in the year that I showed up down there back in 96, she said at the beginning of that summer, she said, I am going to find the new guy that actually represents that is as, as close to the, the old group as possible. Like the, the one that represents it the most at the end of the summer, I'm going to find whoever that guy is. I'm going to give him my charm. And I had no idea it was me. And it hit the end of the summer in 96, two o'clock in the morning. We're ripping it up. We're on the dance floor. And she turned around and stopped me dead in my tracks. And she had tears in her eyes and she held my hand and she, she literally had the charm in her hand and she was holding it. And she was like, I, you have no idea how important this is to me. And I was like, what? And I was like, what's going on? And she's like, I'm giving you something that I never thought I would ever give away, but I'm, you deserve this. You're the one. And she dropped the charm in my hand. And it was like, it was the moment that I really honestly, like it was one of the biggest moments of acceptance I've ever had. It made me really realize that all the work, all the effort that I put through, it all really meant something. And it meant something deeper than just taking my clothes off on stage. It impacted somebody that way. And so I'm talking this story right now, Matt, I have goosebumps all over me telling this story right now, because it's something that, that as much as it's just a material object, I wear it with pride and it's not about being a gold necklace around my neck it's actually what it represents and so you know that meant so much to me and and I'll go to my dying day realizing that that was one of the most amazing moments of my life just to be recognized in that elite group and uh, you know that maybe people think oh there's elite groups and dancing you know like male strippers have that but that was the people that I looked up to right in my industry right like it's It's like yeah. if well, that's it's like a, a felt moment. I I can I can appreciate that 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 what that mm-hmm. moment meant for you just in your telling of the story. But again, mm-hmm. uh, I think if, I think I'm just realizing now that only half the world really knows uh, about <laughs> that that yeah. whole part of what you did for 25 years, and that there was some creativity. And so yeah. I guess I'm. Uh, I have a whole new respect for 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 the occupation now. Thinking that yeah, it is a theatrical performance, and you do have to learn creativity and all and choreography and all that kind of stuff, and be a storyteller. So yeah. that's that's an eye opener for me. Uh, and and congratulations on that very uh, meaningful moment. Now I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave you with this one too, Matt. I just wanted to mention this too, like why I wrote the book. So many people, they said. I could never do what you did, but tell me about what it was like. Right. That's all I wanted to know, right? So I gave him what it was like, but I finished those stories and I thought to myself, this is friggin' great, but I could make it so much more by actually impacting people's lives in the process based off my story, right? right? So that's the meaning behind the book. It's great stripper stories. You'll get some great entertainment out of it. But right. man, what well, I want is people to take something. Name of the book again for people, and uh, especially on the audio side, is Take It Off. I'm showing the cover right now, but the book is just kind of a uh, prerequisite because you do courses or one-on-one work with people. Yeah. Uh, in the in the minute we have left, or a minute or so we have left, tell me about what that entails, what that means, uh, and and what would somebody expect it, yeah. if they got involved in that. 
Yeah. So basically it comes in, uh, the course package really comes in 12 weeks and it's one and a half hours of training when you're doing the one-on-one thing. And so all it really is, is that it's just like anything you have to want to do it. Uh, and it takes confidentiality because people are going to be, they're going to have to be vulnerable to be able to open up that side of themselves to really be their true authentic self. So how do you have that vulnerability? Well, A, yeah, you have to want to do it, but B, you've got to be comfortable enough to expose that. So for me, I get people to actually do my actual worksheet with me. I go through facilitating the course. Then at the the end of it, when I'm finished facilitating it, all I simply do is I say, okay, Matt, what I want you to do is go ahead and read chapter one of my book. And I want you to understand the, the struggle that I had between perspective and truth. And then I want you to read the naked truth after that. And I want you to reflect on your own life. I want you to figure out where maybe there was something in your own childhood that you actually had a skewed, your your truth was skewed by your perspective. And did you carry that into your adulthood in some sort of fear? So that's just an example of what you would do for homework. And then you'd come back next week and we'd sit back down and we'd go through it. You reflect on your own shit. And so we go through it and I'm like, okay, that's great. You know, you you basically were able to, to connect that dot. So then we go to the next dot. Maybe it's, you know, my next chapter, it might be revolving around emotional intelligence tied in with authenticity. And maybe it's a moment where your emotional intelligence was not accurate and you blew something out of proportion because it built up and built up and built up. So this is something that I've had happen myself. Me and so, <laughs> right. So in that second chapter, my, my struggle was acceptance. The way that the, the, I should say I was trying, my discipline was the way that I actually got acceptance, but I was struggling with acceptance. So I had to be disciplined. So again, I talk to my, I go through the course as far as the emotional intelligence and authenticity. I facilitate that at the end of it. I'm like, okay, Matt, read chapter two, reflect on your own life and tell me a time when your emotional intelligence was not aligned with your authenticity. And just all you're all I'm doing is, is I'm not regurgitating the same self-help shit that everybody else is doing out there. I'm telling you, I'm showing you mine so you can show me yours. Like jokingly, I can say that because I'm open enough to do that. And by doing that, hopefully at the end of my course, you can connect the dots in your own life and go, Hey man, this is why I actually dealt with this shit. And I'm not going to deal with this anymore because I know why I strayed from my authenticity. I know it now. The dots are connected. And I just think that if we all did that in our world, we would actually have a lot better world because we wouldn't be so bloody black and white and so tribal and divided. We could actually take the time to understand one another a little bit more. You know, I may not agree with you on everything, my friend. You might have different degree. You might have different political or religious ideology. That's okay. But if I understand why you have that, you know, I understand why you see life through that lens. I can disagree with you and still be all right with that and move on to something that I actually agree with you and respect your perspective. That's all I'm very, trying to do. Very right? cool stuff. Are you an optimist for, for making a, a, that kind of change in the world? Because I, I 50%. Well, good for you. I mean, I I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being connected to a higher purpose other than, I mean, let's face it, we're all, we're all trying to uh, get by in this world and do for ourselves, but to to give something back to the world and feel like you're, you're doing something that, that is bigger than yourself. I think more people should do that. And we'd all be a lot happier and a lot more, a lot more forgiving, a lot more uh, respectful of one another and all that kind of stuff. So 100%, uh, man. 
Yeah. 100%. Thank, thanks for being part of this, and uh, we will continue to support you. Take it off dot ca, not dot com. Take it off dot ca is where you're going to find out the book, find out about the course, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Corey, thank you so much for for being uh, part of the program, and and do feel free to come back anytime if you have something to promote or you just want to uh, you know take this uh, conversation a little further. Anytime you're welcome back. So. Man, I appreciate you so much, and I have podcasters that are friends of mine that want me to come back and do a series because I got a lot of stories we can talk about, but you know what? We only had the hour, right? So, yeah, right. Yeah. I appreciate <laughs> you, man. I appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Please do uh, accept my invitation to come back sometime. Thanks. 100%. Be well. Bye. You too. Corey uh, Lane Hilton, folks. Uh, good stuff there. Um, you know, I'm not bullshitting you when I tell you eye-opening for me. Uh, didn't realize the uh, that it really is a, truly an art form, and it, ta- it you have to be an artist to be in that life i mean again i am i'm just curious info at minddogtv.com guys write to me and tell me if you if you had that perception i I don't think i'm alone in this thinking that because we know what female strippers are i mean (laughs) i'm gonna get some hate mail on this but girls who work in nudie bars and they're just on the pole there's no creativity in that there's no it's not a show. It's not theater. It's not a choreography. It's get out there, shake your stuff, get some t- uh, people dollars in your pants, and go home wealthy. <laughs> and uh, my perception of male strippers was that until tonight. And come come to think of it, uh, uh, just his, the way he presented that idea, that's something I'm – but gave me a lot to think about here tonight. I hope it gave you a lot to think about, and I hope uh, you'll share your thoughts with me, info at minddogtv.com. That's all I have for you for this week. Be back with you with Coffee with the Dog on Monday morning. You want me to tell you who my guest will be? I will have to look that up because I generally don't know on Friday night before the show. Let me see. I'll I'll quickly look it up, though. Uh, Mike Freed looks like... Uh, no, Mike Freed. Yeah. Uh, Kurt, Curtis Berto. Kurt, Cruising Berto. <laughs> Comedian. Uh, out of, I believe, the Midwest. I, I'm going to say Indiana. Uh, he'll be with me on Monday morning for Coffee with the Dog. I hope you'll catch that show. I look forward to seeing you. Until then, I'm Matt Nabo for the Mind Dog TV Podcast. Have a great rest of your night. Bye for now. Have a great weekend, folks.
listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now.